to the Gemable Mechanisms, the BCS podcast, where we speak to folks that are really making IT good for society. And today I'm talking to somebody who I've known for quite a long time, but uh, has done loads of great stuff that uh, you'll have heard about, and that's uh, Dr. Sue Black. So uh, hi, uh, Sue, thanks for joining us. Hi, Brian, lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no problem at all. So the, the last time we met up in, in person, we were just saying before we started our recording, was at the Coercive Control Workshop for a IBM just before this start, stuff all started kicking off, which was an interesting session. Um, but I suppose that leads into um, let's let the audience catch up with you as I am, what you're working on at the moment. So, so what's your current focus is at uh, Durham? Well, so at the moment, we've had great success with the Tech Up Women programme, which was a, a programme funded by the Institute of Coding, where we brought together 15 industry partners and three other universities along with Durham. Um, to run a program to retrain women, particularly from underserved backgrounds, so women of colour, women with disabilities, um, parents, um, to to retrain them into tech careers. Um, And so that's been uh, very successful. Uh, We had a cohort of 100 women, I think only four dropped out, and uh, we finished a year ago, so it's just about our anniversary of of graduation from the program. And... um, we are, I'm kind of delighted really that we managed to get, our aim was to get those women into jobs, into real jobs or mm. onto like follow-on courses. And I think we've had, I can't remember the exact figures, but something like 30 into jobs, 30 into further education. Um, but we've managed that during lockdown and during COVID. So, you know, like we, I, I guess, you know, like when we, everyone graduated at Nottingham Uni back in January last year, And, uh, you know, I just never would have thought that what's happened this year would have happened, you know, and what a time to to try and get a job, really, you know, because everyone kind of went out there into the world looking for for a new job, um, you know, like February, basically February last year, March uh, and kind of ongoing. So, of course, the fact that I think we've we've got about 30 women have either been promoted or or got new jobs in that time is actually great. Um, And, you know, if we hadn't had lockdown, I think I would have been a bit upset at uh, sort of 30%, but um, considering what the, the whole country, the whole world's been going through, um, yeah. I think that that's a pretty good um, achievement, really. So focusing at the moment on running that again, so looking for partners to partner with to, to run Tech Up Women again. Um, last time we trained women into roles as data scientists, um, agile project managers, software developers and um, business analysts. Uh, So four roles that that our industry partners um, wanted us to train the women into, but we can actually put together programs to train into any sort of tech job roles really in collaboration with industry. So we're we're looking for partners for that at the moment, industry partners and talking to a few. Um, So working on that, also working on building up our number of uh, women undergraduates at Durham. So for computer science degree, first year, um, I've been doing some work, well, not just me, the department and the university to up the number of uh, women undergraduates on our programs. And so we've managed so far to get the numbers up from 15%, which is about the average uh, across the country to 30% this year. So delighted with that, but looking yep. to, to get it up to 50% over the next few years. So working hard on that doing doing all sorts of things around um, I guess diversity and inclusion in lots of different ways and 
um, promoting technology, promoting computer science, promoting Durham University in various different ways. I think because universities are really keen, um, particularly now with COVID, I think to get international students, to boost their international student numbers. And I think, you know, like not many people know that Durham was the, is like the third oldest university in the country after Oxford and Cambridge. Mm. And in, in a lot of ways, it's quite similar to Oxford and Cambridge. And um, I think most people internationally have heard of Oxford and Cambridge, but unfortunately haven't heard of Durham. So I'm really keen, along with others in the university, to, to try and get our good name out there um, nationally and internationally so that people think of Durham as a, as a first choice for their, their university. And, and particularly if they want to study computer science, of course, that's great, too. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you're having huge success then in, in, in getting women involved in, in the courses there. Is that um, something that you, you're going to try and help other universities to sort of get involved in similar programmes? Are you unique in doing that programme or, or is it something you're trying to get more widely sort of adopted? So in terms of Tech Up Women or in terms mm. of undergraduates? Oh, well, both actually. Mm. Well, um, you know, we're very keen to to kind of share our messaging and share our experience. So, so with both really, we're doing that. I mean, I've just come off a call with the Institute of Coding um, talking about how to, to try and run... Um, programs like this, like Tech Up Women uh, across the country, um, across the regions. So, you know, we're, we're talking to lots of different people about trying to, working to scale that up, uh, as well as the industry partners that we're talking to. And also in terms of improving our undergraduate numbers, I mean, that's been a, a piece of work that has been ongoing for about three years at Durham. Um, and, you know, quite often people think that doing something, you know, like doubling our number of female undergraduates is you know, is quite a simple thing, you know, like if you just do this, this uh, and this, then it'll happen. But um, I think at Durham, we've had, well, I mean, it was the, it was the head of department, um, Gordon Love's idea to start with three years ago, and he made it kind of a part of the department strategy. And then, you know, the department's done various things. Then I was brought in two years ago, um, and I've been working with Gordon and others around the university to to work out, you know, how do you actually do that? Because actually it's not a really simple thing. Mm. Um, you know, it, there's not one issue, I think, that, that causes the lack of uh, women applying for computer science. You know, there's so many things, you know, and we've talked before over the years about women in tech in lots of different ways and trying to yeah. get more women into tech careers and, and keeping them, you know, like once they, they are in tech, because there's all sorts of issues around it from society and the way we're brought up all the way through to what happens in schools and, and government policy and you know there's just so many different issues uh, yeah. around that whole piece so I think we came up with about I think we've done about 12 different things that we've done at Durham to, to try and make a difference um, and I, I mean at the moment we don't exactly know which things have made a difference but I think you know it's a sort of multifaceted problem and so you need a multifaceted solution and you know, it, it's going to take time for us to really work out what is making the difference of all the things that we're doing. But yeah, we're really keen to to share what we've done with others and, and help other universities to um, to improve their numbers, too. So I, I think it was I think you were the moving um, person behind uh, us starting to even do research in this area ourselves. Quite a few years ago, we did a little scorecard, didn't we, about um, um, women's representation. Yeah. Okay. We do a bigger piece of research every year now, and we, we do a lot of analysis of the ONS figures as well. So, but I just wondered if you had a view on what might help motivate not just women but people of, from from different um, backgrounds to be more involved. 
we know, uh, don't we, that well, diverse teams produce better better products at the end of yeah. the day, better approaches to their projects and programs and, and so on. Yeah. Is the fact that people are hearing more now that there is bias inherent in a lot of um, systems actually helping uh, those from diverse backgrounds be more motivated to get involved, do you think? Do you think that messaging helps or is that too negative? You know, it's really interesting because, you know, I suppose I've been involved in this area with the BCS since, you know, like the 90s. So, you know, like setting up BCS Women in 98, that was, yeah. you know, setting up a, a, a sort of women's network within the BCS was... You know, I, I had that idea because I was going to conf- like tech conferences. So I was doing my PhD at the time and I was going to academic uh, computer science conferences and finding it really hard to, to network with people. And then it wasn't really till I went to a, a women in science conference in Brussels and had such a different experience from my usual computer science conference uh, experience. It was only then that I really realised that I was a woman in tech. You know, before that, I just hadn't I hadn't thought about it at all. I hadn't yeah. thought about gender or anything. And and because, you know, I went into the, to the Women in Science Conference, the first sort of all, all women or mainly women conference that I'd been to, um, thinking to myself, oh, I'm, I'm no good at networking um, because of my previous experiences. Um, and, you know, what is this conference going to be like? Feeling very apprehensive and then just having an amazing time. Um, where I didn't really have to try to network because it felt to me as if everyone was talking to everyone. And so that was just such a different experience from being at uh, what I then realised was about 90% male, 10% female conference, where probably all the guys, you know, were having that experience that I was having at the the mainly um, uh, women conference. And then realising that actually now and again, it's quite nice to be in a majority female group and particularly... A majority uh, women group that that's interested or excited about technology and, and science as well so you know I went from conferences being something that I was scared of frankly to to being one of the most enjoyable parts of my um, of my career I guess and um, you know that was a real eye-opener for me and then I thought coming back from that conference I just thought well I need to try and create this experience in some way for other women that are not having such a great time going to computer science conferences and so set up um, the first BCS women group in in London in 1998 and so kind of thinking back to that time then you know I think a lot has changed and a, a lot has stayed the same I guess since then I think attitudes now are just very very different not of everybody but you know it you can talk about women in tech now and, and people not sort of like wrinkle their noses at you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, like when I set up BCS Women, one of my colleagues at work said to me, why are you ghettoizing yourself? And I just thought, is that what this seems like to you? Like I'm creating a ghetto. I thought I was creating this great group where women can chat to each other about tech. Um, and he saw it as a ghetto. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think we're moving far away, hopefully from those sorts of opinions now. I mean, it's a, it's a generation later, right? That's 22 years ago now. Um, yeah. But when, you know, that was the first network for women in tech in the UK online. And now there are hundreds, probably, if not even thousands of all yeah. different sorts of networks. Yeah. Um, and sort of having awards for women in tech, you know, lots of people turn their noses up at that saying that it was sexist and, you know, anything to do with women in tech was sexist. That, that was yeah. kind of seemed to be the main messaging that I got back then I you know I don't really hear that so much anymore I think some people still might think that but I don't think they're they're in a majority or if they are they're keeping quiet now maybe they know enough to shut up about it with that yeah thing. yeah maybe maybe <laughs> 
But yeah, so I, I don't hear that sort of stuff so much anymore. You know, and I just see all of these amazing initiatives for, mm. for women in technology of all different sorts. Um, you know, and, you know, we really are, as a society, understanding now that diversity is so important and a strength rather than a weakness, you know. And I think back in the day, it was kind of seen as a, as a tick, box, tick box kind of exercise mm. to talk about diversity and inclusion. And whereas now I think people really are realising that it's actually good business sense to, to have diverse teams. You know, and we can see like from companies that have um gone bust over the last few years you know i remember looking at one of the uh, i can't remember who was house of fraser i think it was looking at their board i think was it house of fraser that they went bust a while ago mm -hmm. um yeah you know i think quite a lot of for example like big retailers some have really taken up the mantle in terms of online selling and stuff um but others have just not really changed at all over the years you know they've carried on doing things in the old traditional way and, you know, that that's meant that they, they're not doing so well now. And, um, you know, I really think that companies that realise the, the value um, of diversity and diversity of all sorts. So the sorts that, you know, we're, we're mainly talking about uh, these days around, um, you know, people of colour and people with disabilities, maybe and LGBTQ plus uh, and gender um and social class but but also just diversity of background and experience to be able to bring bring more um possible solutions to problems you know yeah. I, I think we should really see diversity of all sorts as a massive strength um and you know i think quite a lot of the time we get we get group thinking in various situations and i think you know what we need is people who will bring that diversity of expertise to um you know, up to solve particular business problems or, or any sorts of problems, because, you know, it just makes sense that if you've yeah. got a bigger pool of ideas from people with different backgrounds and experiences, you've, you've got more chances of, of solving your problem and, and more quickly and more effectively as well. Absolutely. I mean, it opened my eyes when I first started working with you in the, in the BCS Women Group, which is too long ago now, but I care to remember uh, <laughs> that. Uh, yeah, one of the common things that used to get said to me, and I still hear occasionally, uh, if you're trying to put a panel together, is, oh, you know, there's there's just no women experts, and, and you land up with mammals, which I'm sure is a, a phrase you've heard. But that's yeah. just not true, is it? I mean, no. over the last years, we've been doing more and more webinars, for example. We've had loads of uh, women represented around our panels. In fact, this podcast, I think we've interviewed more women than men. So uh, that, you feel pretty good about that because you've had a hand in, in that sort of change of view. Do, do you see it like that? Yeah, no, I mean, it, the, it's great the way that things have changed. I'm very, very happy with that. The thing that frustrates me is, is the rate of change. To yeah, be honest, right. You know, for it's, it's like I was saying, a whole generation. So, you know, 20 plus years of doing stuff in this area and kind of trying to raise awareness in various different ways from different programs that I've set up or been involved in or just writing or talking about stuff you know it's it's kind of I find it kind of annoying sometimes that I've ended up spending a lot of my career going on about this stuff when I could have been focusing on you know on technical computer science issues which is where I started out you know and also I think it kind of I do feel a bit kind of upset when I see lots of particularly young women who are out there you know really championing the women in tech stuff so that is amazing in itself I'm, I'm very happy about that but then at the same time 
a lots of those women are very super smart women who could be working on technical solutions to problems, you know, and have, have come from a computer science technical background. And because they've got so annoyed um, in, you know, in whatever way about the situation, have chosen to focus on doing something about the sort of women in tech issues. But, you know, I feel then as a, as a country or as, a, as, a, as the world, we've lost their, their minds, which could have been working on, on tech problems, you know, uh, or building unicorns or, you know, like amazing startups or scale-ups. Yeah, I mean... Solving problems rather than trying to, you know, like make, make the world a better place. I think that um, there's, there's two sides, isn't there? So I think without folks like you that are, that are happy to sort of put yourself out there and say these sorts of things, and the dial probably wouldn't move very much at all. And I was just thinking of, a, of, a, of, our, of our last episode of this podcast um, where my colleague spoke to uh, Dorothy uh, Monacoso, who's uh, currently the UK's only black female professor of computer science. And, and in her interview, she didn't really talk about the sort of things you did in terms of trying to go out there and change things because she was so keen to get, she just loved engineering. So she just got her head down and got on with it. It's two different ways of motivating, isn't it? Yeah, well, we need both. We need both, you know, yeah. we need women working, you know, working to become technical, you know, like proper technical professor in computer science. Um, and we also need people trying to, to change people's minds around the, the issues. But I kind of feel sometimes, you know, like, like we've lost out really in that all those women like me that haven't then focused on it, you know, because I, I my PhD was a technical PhD. So I, mm. you know, really, if- What was that, what was that issue interview? Around women in tech, sorry? What was that in uh, your PhD? Uh, the ripple effect metric. So I was looking at um, code complexity. And if you uh, make a change to this part of code, what effect does that have like as a, as a ripple across the rest yeah. of the code? Um, okay. So, you know, so that was a technical PhD. And, yeah. you know, if the sort of women in tech issues, whatever we want to call it, uh, weren't there then I would have gone on to a technical career and and probably been a, a more technical um, computer science professor um, so by you, now you whereas you know that. I've gone a completely different route because yeah. I'm so incensed <laughs> by, yes. yeah. by the situation so you know and, and so you know that's my choice and that's what I've done um, but just the fact that I think you know in a way we're losing lots of women who are who because they get so annoyed with the situation go out there and and set up initiatives which of course are amazing I'm not saying what they're doing is wrong but I just feel like as a whole we've then lost those technical women to yeah. to a career where they're not being very technical that's very interesting that's interesting I mean you've also championed the sort of historic um impact of women in this area haven't we I know you were very involved in Bletchley you wrote the book about Bletchley as well yeah what's the latest sort of sit, uh, there is, are they struggling because of um you know this COVID situation that sort of thing yeah well so I mean I'm, I'm not as involved uh as I once was at all I mean I I when I I started off actually with Bletchley Park in championing the women that worked at Bletchley Park mm. and with the BCS uh with funding from the BCS um ran an oral history project to capture the memories of the some of the women that worked there because I was amazed to find on my first visit in 2003 so we're going back a bit there as well that um more than I think about 80 percent of the people that worked at Bletchley Park were women and so there wasn't any information about that out there anywhere that I could find so I was amazed by that on my first visit there and then with the BCS ran a campaign 
uh, sorry, ran a, an oral history project to, to capture the memories of some of the women that worked there because I was so worried that, um, you know, that they would die, frankly, yeah, and that we'd never know their stories at all. So that was, I think that was launched in 2008 um, at the BCS in London. And um, at that time, the director of Bletchley Park, Simon Greenish, said at the launch that uh, he was really worried that Bletchley Park would have to close because they were having financial difficulties and he said if they closed they wouldn't be able to open again because it would just be too hard to to open up the site again um so I kind of like went away from think from that thinking well that was wrong and then I was invited to a reception there um where I did a full tour of the site which I'd not done before with one of the veterans and he was telling us about all these amazing code-breaking achievements that had happened all around the site at Bletchley Park um which was you know really exciting and um, and at the end of his tour, he said, and the, and the work that was done here was said to have shortened World War II by two years. And at that time, 11 million people a year were dying. So I just kind of stood there thinking, so yeah. this place potentially saved 22 million lives and it might have to close. That's ridiculous. So then went away. And at that time, I was head of department at the University of Westminster, went away and started a campaign to save Bletchley Park. So got CPHC involved um, and had lots of support. We wrote a letter to the Times, which the Times published. I managed to get us on um, BBC News and um, that went out um, internationally as well as nationally. And, um, and but yeah, basically that was the start of a three-year campaign, which kind of took over my life for three years. So as well as being full-time um, head of department at Westminster, um was yeah. campaigning mainly from my mobile phone um <laughs> on the way to work and back and during lunch breaks and stuff um to start with it was using like national media going to national media like the times and the bbc but then um started using twitter towards the end of 2008 and it was twitter really that made a massive difference mm -hmm. because it was early days of twitter but like from just starting to use it i realized that i could connect with people around the world and just by typing bletchley park um, into the search box in Twitter, I could find anyone that was already talking or had ever talked yeah. on Twitter about Bletchley Park and start conversations with them. So, so um, yeah, Twitter was amazing in helping us to to save Bletchley Park. And then, after a month or two of using Twitter, I found Stephen Fry, um, yeah. and uh, he posted a selfie when he got stuck in a lift in uh, uh, Centre Point, a building in London. And I just saw a selfie of Stephen Fry and I just thought, I must get Stephen Fry involved. I'm sure he's, you know, he'll be interested in Bletchley Park. He loves history and technology. Luckily, he was following me on Twitter, which meant that I sent him several direct messages. And, and the next day he tweeted a link to my Saving Bletchley Park blog. And instead of the usual 50 hits a day, I got 8,000. Um, so I think that, you know, that was a step change in the campaign. Yeah. It took another two years before we knew that Bletchley Park was saved but that was when they got 4.1 million from the Heritage Lottery Fund and um, uh, we uh, yeah and so then the uh, the director uh, said we're going to be okay basically you know you don't need to talk about saving Bletchley Park anymore. Yeah so yeah and so my book Saving Bletchley Park tells the whole story of, of what we did um, throughout those three years really and also it's got the history of Bletchley Park in there as well and um, you know stuff about what the women did at Bletchley Park, what Turing did, the Enigma machine, what the Americans did at Bletchley Park, all sorts of mm. interesting stories from Bletchley Park too. Yeah I mean that's fascinating stuff isn't it and I've got to say that um, uh, that's been interesting to, to follow from my perspective as well because we BCS people 
want to look for, but we love the uh, we love the history stuff as well. There's no getting around that, yeah. is there? Yeah. So, um, let me talk to you a little bit about the social mobility. So every year, as you know, since uh, since you started off with the with the gender research, we've been expanding our um, social mobility type research. So we now we look at gender and age as well, and um, ethnicity, that sort of thing. I yeah. just want to ask you about your sort of social mobility journey because you, you've got a quite well documented, um, yeah. you know, life story yeah. about you know, the background that you came from. So yeah. maybe rather than um, going over that again now necessarily, perhaps I could ask you your views just on um, how you found things since as you've been moving along in, in your IT career, particularly obviously for yourself in academic sort of circles. Um, mostly around this idea of imposter syndrome. Do you, do, you, do you feel that's still a strain? Has it been a problem for you uh, that uh, you go into these situations and, and perhaps take a, uh, automatically try and take a back seat because of not feeling worthy or some such thing? Oh, yeah, well, I think I did a lot early on, particularly. Um, I remember, you know, like when I was... Uh, I don't know why, like in my 20s, which is when I started my, when, when I went to college and started my degree because I'd left school at 16. Um, mm. Yeah, I definitely suffered massively from imposter syndrome. And um, for example, when I started teaching, so the first time, I, first time I taught a class, I was horrified at the thought that I'd have to go and stand in front. It was only 10 students, which now is nothing to me, you know. <laughs> um, but back then I was just so, so scared. And, and like to get over imposter syndrome at the time I just used to pretend I was someone else right. uh, you know, in a kind of fake it till you make it kind of way I don't know if I knew that phrase then but you know <laughs> I just used to pretend that I was someone else entirely and that's the only way that I could do it you know and, and I've had like really scary things like with the Bletchley Park campaign then having to go on live live yeah. tv interviews and and you know being again I, I remember that um, the first time I was, I did a live TV interview at the BBC in London, I was sitting waiting to go into the, the little studio to, um, you know, to be on live TV and um, not really knowing what was gonna come ahead, but just, I was so scared that I sat there hoping that I could have a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> So that they would have to call an ambulance and I'd have to go to hospital because I would, that was, to me, was less frightening than having to go on live TV. Um, so, you know... A, a baptism of fire. Hey? A baptism of fire somewhere. Yeah, completely. I was so, so petrified. Um, so so that sort of thing doesn't happen to me now. You know, like I, a few years ago now, like three years ago, I... I got um, I got a social impact award from the Grace Hopper Conference in mm. um, Orlando, Florida, and it was presented at the conference in front of eighteen thousand people. And I gave a talk in front of eighteen thousand people, and I didn't get imposter syndrome. <laughs> you know, so so I've managed to. It's taken time and a lot of work on myself, really, but I've managed to get myself to to a state now where I don't remember the last time I had imposter syndrome but you know it's taken 30 years to get there um but you know I, I really do think that I've, I've gone from a place of feeling extremely shy and scared of the world in so many different ways to being very confident and things like that don't really bother me anymore and I think a lot of it is because I've gradually just forced myself out of my comfort zone Right. over and over and over and over again so you know I've gone from being scared of standing up in front of 10 people and you know not sleeping the night before that class and 
even sitting in the loo for half an hour before going into that class just scared and like yeah. almost in tears to you know being able to to walk onto a stage in front of hundreds or thousands of people and not really feeling you know not worrying about it feeling excited but but not worried um but yeah that's taken sort of 30 years of, of pushing myself over and over again to do things that scared me kind of like step by step really but you know yeah. eventually it's got me to a place where I'm a lot less stressed <laughs> than I was then <laughs> definitely because because I'm not in frightening situations anymore because the things that would have completely horrified me back then no. don't you know I look forward to now yeah I mean, I'm sure that'll be encouraging to, to some of the listeners who maybe struggle with with the same sort of um, uh, feelings and, and lack of confidence. And one thing I wanted to ask you about as well was yeah. was how you now face situations when people say things to you that that are reductive. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. We yeah. had an article recently by um, Suzanne Doyle Morris who wrote a really interesting book called The Con Job, and it's about the um, the fact that in, in business people seem to value confidence over actual competence. Yeah. And you talked about some of the language that gets used about women and and black people in work. So, for example, with women, if they're confident, they tend to be called bolshy, brassy, brazen. Or black people that show confidence are angry, uppity, or aggressive. And, and there's a sort of reductive language. How do you deal with it? Does that still happen to you? How do you deal with that sort of thing? Well, yeah, I kind of feel like I'm living a bit of a charmed life now because I, I don't ever really get challenged on anything anymore. And, and so I guess that's partly because I'm now in my 50s and not in my 20s or 30s. You know, I think there's there's definitely some ageism going on there uh, as well. And, you know, also, I don't, it's, it's really interesting because I, I just feel like, you know, when I was a single parent pushing my kids around, you know, living on a council estate and pushing my kids in a buggy around um Brixton when they were little um you know so many people treated me badly you know like particularly you know like going to the housing office or something if I couldn't pay my rent or you know that kind of thing or bus drivers even um just so rude and so you know I got talked down to a lot and and so that practically doesn't happen to me at all now um very very occasionally um and so it, it's not something that, you know, that happens to me every day like it was doing before. But I mean, so, you know, so I don't have the experience of, of people challenging me. Um, but I, yeah, I just think that that is a general thing. But, you know, you can see that society is changing. And I think technology and social media have been a big part of that, really. You know, the fact that we can now see... You know, just thinking about stuff like the Me Too campaign, Black Lives Matter, that couldn't have happened without social media, which couldn't have yeah. happened without the internet and the World Wide Web and technology. And so, you know, I really feel excited, really, to, to be working in technology because that, to me, is kind of providing the platform that's changing the world. And, of course, you know, we're seeing some things that aren't so great happening and being shared on social media, but at the same time, you know, there's lots of, of really good things that where people are becoming connected with each other and that's changing the way that society, you know, we in general see other people and exposing us to, to what other people's lives are like, you know. And so the sort mm. of things that we saw with George Floyd's death and, you know, other um, particularly um, black people in the US that's now 
you know, people have shared it across the world. So you, you, no one can deny that that's happening, which yeah. I think, you know, previous to social media, things happened, but no one could record it on a, you know, so you couldn't see it. No one could see what had happened. And so people, I think, would just in general dismiss it or not even hear about it. Whereas now, you know, it's right in your face and no one can deny that those things are happening because they're, they're all recorded and, and out there for the whole world to see. So although a lot of that is is stuff that we probably would rather not see at the same time it's amazing because it's enabling us to see what people's lives are like all over the world and and particularly people that come from disadvantaged um, communities or underserved communities we can now see what what their lives are like and that can help us to understand what the issues are and then come together again, connected by, by technology to, to hopefully be able to solve them. That half an hour has flown by. That's about how long we <laughs> do things for us. So I just want to ask two more questions. First of all, I just say thanks, thanks ever so much for speaking to us today. And, um, you know, you, you, whether you like it or not, you've now become very much an inspirational figure for other people because of the stuff that uh, you've done. And that's, uh, that's really cool, isn't it? Um, the first thing I've asked you, I suppose, is, is if you were going to say something to somebody that was perhaps in a similar situation to you uh, uh, when, when, you know, you had your three kids, you had to leave yeah. home and they were worried about their, their career or you, you just want to do an advert for getting into computer science. But what yeah. do you say? What do you say? Well, look, I think, you know, technology is, is, is the platform that's changing the world. And so we want people from all backgrounds and experiences to, to be part of creating and, and using that platform um, in a way which is going to change the world for a better. And we can only do that again, kind of going back to our points about diversity. If we've got a diverse group of people building and, and uh, using that, um, that platform or those um, tools and, and techniques. And so, you know, for me, it's the most exciting area to get into. And I think, you know, particularly thinking back then to when I was not really knowing what I was going to do um, before I went back into education, um, I'm so delighted that I, I chose computer science and chose technology as a career. And, you know, I just thank goodness I did. Um, right. And, uh, you know, I think in, in that situation, what really helped me then was working out where I wanted to get to and what I wanted. And, and really, to be honest, at the beginning, it was money. You know, I needed money to support my, my family, my three kids. And so right. as well as being excited about technology, I was excited about the amount of money that I could learn in, in, in a tech career. So that's even back then. So that's in 1988, um, I was yeah. thinking that. So, you know, and that's even more so now. And there are so many jobs in technology that I just think, you know, why would you, why would you go into anything else, really, um, from my point of view? And I think that what really helped me was finding other people. Um, and it wasn't always easy to do, but finding other people that were were trying to do the same kind of thing themselves that would support me you know so so find other people around you and of course that's a lot easier now than it was 30 years ago yeah um other people who can you know can kind of champion you who you can chat to when things are going well but also when things are going badly having a kind of like a, a support um group of friends who you know it doesn't have to be in computer science but who are trying to get to the same sort of place that you are that where you can support each other i think is so critically important and also kind of moving anyone away from you that's very negative towards you because you know i just think of the difference between mm. well 
frankly my first husband and my second husband my my first husband if I tried to do anything made me feel bad about it um whereas um my husband now is amazing And, and having him as my sort of champion and supporter um who's you know like always there and it encourages me in everything that I do um just has made such a massive difference in my life and you know it doesn't have to be a husband it, you know it could be your friends or your support group but you know don't don't put up with having negative people around you you know surround yourself with positive people who are going to encourage you and I think that's probably the, the biggest thing that you can do so it's quite simple but I think very um effective or very you know fundamentally important to, yeah. to being able to be a successful person You've got a nice balance of inspiration and pragmatism in there, so which I think is really good. <laughs> Thank um, you. Here's, here's the last question. Um, yeah. So y- y- you've inspired a lot of folks. Who has inspired you? Who do you find inspirational now? Who helped you in the past? You, you don't have to go into too much detail if you don't want to, but perhaps in general terms. Yeah, well, I mean, so many people. and I mean, it's mainly people who've overcome adversity, I have to say, because, you know, of course, that resonates well with me. Mm. Um, people like Steve Shirley from the beginning, just such an incredible person, you know, who's yeah. 60 years ahead of her time with um, with F International and everything she did with women and, and technology um, through to, you know, like the, the Tech Up Women program that we've run at Durham. The women on the program, they're just, just so incredible women who, you know, have come from quite often from difficult backgrounds and are still managing to be successful and, and kind of get out there and, and change the world. You know, women like um, Benedicta Banga and Freya Usman, you know, just so many of our, our women on Tech Up Women have just been so outstandingly wonderful that anytime if I'm feeling down, which does happen still now and again, um, mm-hmm. I watch our Tech Up Women videos and uh, just all the, all the women talking about their experience of Tech Up Women. And I just think, wow, you know, I was part of that. And uh, it just really cheers me up. And I, I just get very excited about their potential, you know, like young women going out there and, and changing the world for the better um, particularly did. around technology just gets me um, pumped up again I'm very very excited brilliant yeah can I say thanks so much Sue for, for, for being with us today oh you're welcome I've enjoyed it thank you